Well, good evening. Judy Bruning, it's so nice to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. This is one of the Melrose ladies you were talking about, eh? <laughs> um, <coughs> we were a part of uh, a church in the Lake Region, Lake Area Bible Church uh, that Judy's been a member of for probably 20 years, 24 years, yeah. Well, as um, Susie mentioned, Father Ron called me Tuesday afternoon and uh, asked if I would share tonight. I'm delighted to, but it's been a rather busy couple of days, so uh, bear with me. I, I uh, had to run to Ocala today, and all day long it seems I've had a phone glued to my ear. I run a, a company as well. So I have jotted down a few verses of Scripture uh, that I wanted to share with you this evening. Let's open up, please, to Luke, the ninth chapter. I would suggest we open with prayer, but I think we've done that for the last 60 minutes, haven't we? Um, in prayer, particularly when we're called upon to pray for others, it seems as if our prayers are offered in the within the context of, of a conflict. And so we are obviously praying to God, but sometimes we find ourselves praying for people and addressing both God and uh, the adversary, who is an opponent of God's will and purpose. And, uh, and so Jesus equipped us uniquely to engage in prayer on that level. In verse 1 of chapter 9, we read, then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. There are two words in particular uh, I think are important in verse 1. Power and authority. Jesus granted them to his disciples. Um, they each have a very um, important and particular role. Authority, we might think of jurisdiction when we consider authority. It's a, it is the, the right to exercise uh, power within a given area. Uh, the word power, when we, we think of that, it's actually strength or force. I, the image of a police officer is conjured up in my mind. Uh, and a, a police officer is granted authority. That's what allows him uh, to enforce the law in a given jurisdiction. For instance, in the city of Gainesville, police officers here are authorized to enforce the laws of, uh, well, uh, federal laws, state laws, and any local ordinances. They are authorized to enforce them, aren't they? Now, that might entail, for instance, pulling over a speeder. Now, when a police officer pulls over someone who's speeding or he issues a traffic citation, he doesn't really expect much trouble, does he? I hope not, right? Ordinarily, no. Um, these are run-of-the-mill um, transgressions and, you know, they issue citations or warnings for those sorts of things. But from time to time, they may find themselves dealing with an element um, that requires something more than authority. For instance, what if they were to happen upon uh, a, 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 a 
the commission of a crime. They happened upon it as it was taking place. Perhaps uh, a bank was being robbed or a convenience store was being robbed. Would it be enough for the police officer simply to say, oh my, that's not right. There are any number of laws and ordinances you're in breach of right now. And so I'm going to have to ask you, number one, stop. Number two, you're going to need to accompany me down to the police station. We're going to actually file charges against you. Now, what would be the chances of the criminal, this person, uh, committing a crime of complying willingly with the officer at that point? Well, darn it, you caught me. All right. Um, I, I guess let's go. No. Ordinarily, when you're dealing with a criminal, you're dealing with someone who is an outlaw. They live without regard to the law. They live in contempt of the law. They have no intention of abiding by it. In fact, it's their intention to break laws whenever necessary. And uh, they may do that with the help of a firearm, right? And so that police officer is, uh, it, it's not sufficient for him simply to be in possession of authority, though that's critical first step. You may be annoyed by speeders as they whiz around you in traffic or people who drive poorly and are obviously breaking the law may be annoying to you and you may fantasize about pulling them over and giving them a ticket, but you're not authorized to. In fact, if you tried to, you would be breaking the law. So it's important that they're authorized to enforce the law, but oftentimes um, they're going to require more than authority. They will need power, and that exists in the form of a sidearm, right? And it's amazing how compliant even a criminal can become when they're dealing with both authority and power. When we are praying and our uh, prayers for others find us not simply um, addressing God and appropriating His promises, but find us countering the works of the adversary, then we need both authority and power. Now, if we lack authority, uh, we're, our prayers are obviously not going to be effective. Do you remember the, uh, the incident in the, in the book of Acts and the seven sons of Sceva? They, uh, they commanded a spirit to come out in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they had a secondary, tertiary relationship with Jesus, no real connection, personal connection with Jesus, which means they had no authority to operate in his name. And, and what was the demon's response to them? Jesus, I know. Paul, I know. But who are you? And the last we read of these men, they have been stripped naked by this um, uh, demon-possessed man, and they're fleeing down the road. That's the last we hear of them. We must have authority to address the adversary, but oftentimes we will need something more, and that's called power. And so Jesus gave to his disciples both authority and power. 
Well, let's let's look uh, just one chapter over at um, uh, Luke ten. beginning with verse 1, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, the harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into into, uh, his harvest. And then we'll pick this back up in verse 17. Then the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven." Now, he's simply saying this. They've returned. They're fantastically enthused about um, the adventures they've had. As they've prayed for the sick, they've seen mighty miracles. And when they've prayed for those who are possessed, they've seen the demons flee. It's an extraordinary experience for them. And they return with joy and report all of this to Jesus. And sensing their enthusiasm, especially with regard to authority and power, he said, you know, I want you to put things in perspective. I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven, a sudden flash. In other words, when Satan had persuaded, Lucifer had persuaded uh, a third of the angels of heaven to rebel against God with him and essentially was going to uh, take over the throne, God dealt with him. And it happened in an instant. There really wasn't much of a war didn't lay siege to heaven. It was over before it started practically. Jesus is suggesting uh, not that Satan uh, is absent power, but that compared to God's power, it really is insignificant. What we should be deeply enthused about, what we should rejoice in is the fact that our, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life and we will spend eternity with God However, it would be a mistake to imagine, uh, and, and uh, some people do this. I remember as a, um, a young man, a uh, teenager still, in, uh, while I was living in California, <coughs> listening to some uh, of the uh, uh, young adults there talk about uh, praying for people. And uh, they used to have nicknames for the devil, old Slewfoot and things like that. And... And the suggestion was, um, you know, he's, he's on the run and trembling because we're here. And I, I just thought that there's something <laughs> that seems a little imprudent about that. Jesus explores uh, this a little farther in uh, Mark, the third chapter. Let's look there. It would be a mistake to imagine that uh, you're... You're addressing a powerless entity. It would be a mistake to imagine that you do not, in fact, need real power if you're going to be engaged in this business of prayer and especially prayer for others. In uh, Mark, the third chapter, beginning with verse 22.
And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts out demons. So he, Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan if a kingdom is divided against itself? That kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house. I want you to look again at uh, uh, that remark in verse 27. No one can enter a strong man's house. Now in this parable, who is Jesus referring to as the strong man? Satan. So make no mistake about it. When we are dealing with Satan, when we are addressing in prayer um, these principalities and powers, these rulers of the darkness of this world, we are dealing with real power. And it would be a mistake to, I, I think, minimize that. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation. Now, having looked at that, let's turn over to Ephesians, the sixth chapter, of, uh, a portion of Scripture familiar, I'm sure, to everyone here. Beginning with verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Now, the manner in which Paul writes this, I can't help but wonder, is he closing out the epistle or is he saying, now I can address this matter? Because he begins this epistle, uh, interestingly, he talks about the fact that you and I have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, verse 2 of Ephesians 1. He then goes on to remind us that uh, Christ is seated in heavenly places far above uh, all principality, all powers, all might and dominion, and every name that is named. And then in the next chapter, he explains that we're seated there with him. He explains to the church at Ephesus that he is praying for them, that God would grant to them the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. And in, in chapter 3, that they would be filled with all might by his spirit in their inner man. He's really encouraging them to consider uh, the reality of uh, another dimension that our lives unfold within. It's easy for you and I to uh, live in awareness of the physical world around us, isn't it? We can see it. It's evident to us. All we have to do is open our eyes, listen. We're, for most of us, reality exists within the confines of these three or four dimensions, if you include time. But reality enjoys a, a, a much broader scope, doesn't it? It exists along a spectrum that begins in the... Um, invisible world. God is called the invisible God. His kingdom is an invisible kingdom. 
we're, we're uh, commanded in the book of Corinthians to look at what? Things which are unseen. It's a bit of a paradox. How do you look at something you can't see? But he's, he's urging us to live in an awareness of the reality of this world of the Spirit, this place where, that God occupies. And it's really where, where the matters which unfold in all of our lives begin and end. Everything has a root in that world and in that realm, doesn't it? But we live so much of the time, I wouldn't say in ignorance of it, but we don't live in a continual awareness of it. And so Paul is really in the book of Ephesians from the get-go. He is urging us to become more aware of the reality of this unseen kingdom and this invisible God. And he continues until we arrive at chapter 5, beginning, let's, let's start with, uh, say, verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I don't think he's urging us simply, don't be drunk. I think he's offering us an illustration. What do we call uh, uh, someone who is driving drunk? Other than stupid. What do we call them? Under the influence. What does that mean, they're under the influence? Influence of what? Alcohol, and, and uh, that's not a bad description. Uh, when someone imbibes too much, they fall under the influence of that, the effects of that alcohol in their system. And it, and it has extraordinary effects on their judgment in terms of perception, but also on the way they think and perceive reality. I think Paul is suggesting to us that we should live our lives rather than under the influence of, of something else, we should live our lives under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now the language in the Greek is unique because it's suggesting that we should live our lives being filled with the Holy Spirit, that it is a, that it is a persistent need and that we should be being filled all of the time. Well, how do we do this? Paul addresses that immediately. Verse uh, 19, say this with me. Let's read verse 19 aloud together. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. What happens when we praise God? when we commune with him in our hearts. He inhabits the praises of his people. We're literally invoking God's presence into our lives. Draw near to God, James wrote, and he will draw near to you. He's urging us, first of all, if we're going to lead a life under the influence and control of the Holy Spirit, if we're going to lead a Spirit-filled life, we need to enjoy and experience God's very real presence in our lives, in our midst. We do that through this invitation of worship. As we worship Him, we are inviting, I don't like to use the word invoke, but we are inviting His presence. And God is eager to commune with us, isn't He? 
he rushes in and fills that space. It's more than an idea. It's more than a state of mind. It's a reality. The living God is communing with you. His very presence fills your life. We can experience power, very real power in that manner. Remember, Paul prayed in Ephesians, uh, the third chapter, that we would be filled with his might by his spirit in our inner man. There's an actual impartation of life and power that occurs. Do you remember, uh, you recall when Jesus was, um, uh, he was uh, traveling to Jairus' home to minister to his daughter there who, who was dead, to, to uh, raise her from the dead. And he was stopped on his way by a woman with an issue of blood. She touched him. And we read that power went out of him. Jesus perceived that power had gone out of him. And as it flowed into her body, she was made whole. That power is apparently something tangible, isn't it? Something real. And it made an extraordinary difference in her body and in her circumstances. As we invite the presence of God into our lives, into our person, there is an exchange that occurs. Our weakness for his strength, his life and power become more resident in us. Uh, and so we want, if we're going to lead this spirit-filled life, we want to lead a life in which we are enjoying the very real presence of Christ. Uh, verse uh, uh, 20, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you suppose uh, this is about? Why should we, or why are we being called upon to give thanks at all times for all things unto God? What is that doing? What is that forcing upon you and I? Aside from praise and all of its wonderful benefits, well, certainly a little humility, yes. But isn't it requiring you and I to remain centered in that reality, the reality of God, the reality of His kingdom, that we're reckoning with that in every moment? It is a point of reference for us in every circumstance, every situation, and at every moment we are, we are intentionally living in an awareness of the reality of God and His kingdom. By giving thanks for all things, we are removing uh, um, from our thinking the possibility that we might just imagine things unfold in our lives apart from the attention of God. And they don't. We are reminding ourselves of a reality that reaches beyond the edges of our senses. And that's really critical for the Spirit-filled life because it reminds you constantly, I have access to resources beyond those which are apparent to my senses. I have access to resources that extend beyond what I can feel, what I can see. I have access to these resources that Paul was addressing these spiritual blessings that exist for us in heavenly places where Christ is seated 
far above principalities and powers, might, rule, and dominion, every name that is named, and we are seated there with him. So it's reminding us by giving thanks at all times and all things, it's reminding us of this reality. And finally, and this seems mundane, people when they think of spiritual warfare, I, I think there's, they think this is something esoteric. And that thrills some people. It may seem mundane, this next, um, uh, this next matter, but it's not. In fact, it's where God really shows up. So we are singing and making melody in our hearts to the Lord. We are communing with Him through worship. We are giving thanks always for all things. We're being very intentional in maintaining a, a comprehensive awareness of the reality of God and His kingdom at every moment in our lives. And finally, what do we do? Verse 21, submitting to one another in the fear of God. Well, that doesn't sound very exciting. I like the worship. That's pretty neat. Giving thanks always. I, I like that. But now I'm being called into a team event here. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Do you remember Jesus said, I am lowly and meek? He said, listen, in the world, uh, people seek to lord it over one another to establish their greatness. But it, it, it's not so in my kingdom. Who is great in the kingdom of God? The one who becomes a servant of all. Submitting ourselves one to another has a very plays a very critical role in this matter of authority and power. I want you to um, uh, look with me at... Uh, well, let's see. I'm going to need to... Shorten this up here a bit. Um, well, let's just talk a little bit about a few, a few verses. You recall the centurion who came to Jesus? And he said, my, my servant lieth at home sick. And Jesus said, okay, I'll, I'll come and heal him. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. That's okay. I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Then he explained the basis uh, for his confidence. He said, you see, I am a man under authority and a man given authority. I say to this one, go and he goes, to another come and he cometh. But notice what he said. The examples he offered, uh, of course, was issuing commands. But he said, I'm a man under authority which suggested what? My ability to exercise authority exists in direct correlation to my submission to the authority that I'm under. In the absence of that, I have no authority. Jesus said, I've not found so great faith in all of Israel. This authority um, that uh, Jesus enjoyed existed in in um, proportion to his own obedience, didn't it? Let's look at Philippians 2 real quickly.
here we see the nature of God uh, on display. Verse 4, let each of you, well, actually, let's begin with uh, verse 3 of Philippians 2. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is the nature of God on display. And it was from the beginning. Jesus, the, uh, his advent occurred in the lowliest of places, in a manger, a barn, a stable, alongside heaps of manure and animals. And he calls upon us to lead a life that reflects this same um, commitment to serving others we're called upon to consider ourselves in the book of Romans servants of others to esteem them better than ourselves why, why do you suppose we're, we're called on to do something like that that seems demeaning it means if that is your approach to others it means you're going to place their interest above your own now, that's not the way we think ordinarily as humans, is it? It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. He who tooteth not his own horn goes without his horn tooted. We put ourselves first. Um, and Jesus is saying, no, you put yourself last and put others first. Let's go back to Ephesians now. Now, I want you to remember before we continue reading, and I'm sorry I'm going a little long here, but I need to finish this point. Remember, verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. Paul has made a case to get to this point. So he, what he's writing um, before this is, is uh, preparing us to then appropriate what, he's, what, what he shares in verse 10 and, and beyond. So he's told us about this wonderful spirit-filled life. What do we do? Worship and praise. We are communing with him. Number two, we are living intentionally in an awareness of the reality of God and his kingdom at all times, giving thanks for all things at all times. And then we're submitting ourselves. And listen to what Paul, he goes into some detail here. Um, verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as unto the Lord. Now there are some fellows that have abused this horribly. Um, and it, this does not, this exists incomplete if it's not wed to the verses of Scripture around it. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it 
with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as the lord does the church what is he suggesting here he's suggesting that in a marriage relationship a husband and a wife are placing the interests of the other of the other the interests of their spouse above their own interests the husband places his wife's interests above his own the wife places her husband's interests above her own these are two people competing uh, to be better servants to one another it's not someone lording it over another one another one a husband isn't lording it over his wife he is placing in his role of, of decision making he is placing her interests above his own just as jesus did the wife is placing her husband's interests above her own he continues verse 1 of chapter 6 children obey your parents and the lord for this is right verse 4 fathers do not provoke your children to wrath you have children serving the better interests of their parents parents serving the better interests of their children verse 5 servants be obedient to those who are your masters verse 9 you masters do the same things to them giving up threatening knowing that your own master also is in heaven there is no partiality with him so he is saying in, in the chief relationships in our lives where we are dealing um, with other people, these institutions, marriage, family, and work, we are serving one another. The employer is serving the best interest of the employee. The employee is serving the best interest of the employer. The children are serving the best interests of the parents. The parents are serving the best interests of the children. And uh, so on with the husband and wife. These are, these are the primary relationships of our life. Marriage, children, and work. And in each one of those, we are called to carry into those relationships this loving servant attitude of Christ and to lay down our lives for those we're called to serve. Here's the catch. If we don't, then we're not living our lives in submission to God's will, are we? If we are not submitted to His authority, what authority do we actually have when we enter into prayer? Not a lot, do we? So it really is critical. We, can't, we cannot um, live our lives divorced from the needs around us. We cannot, we cannot lead our lives selfishly. And most of the time, we wouldn't consider our lives as, as, as being led in such a manner. But remember, we live in a world in which it's not normal to put uh, someone else's interests above your own. So we have to view life through the prism of his word not the worldview the dominant worldview of of uh, the culture in which we live so we are called if we're going to walk in the spirit and again that's a marvelous invitation to walk in the spirit 
but it's very practical, isn't it? I think sometimes when we think about, oh, I'm going to walk in the Spirit, we sort of have this idea of being fairly disconnected from the world around us, almost as if we're occupying a space on a mountaintop, you know. But walking in the Spirit is a very practical impact on our lives, and it unleashes extraordinary power in our lives. When you and I lead our lives in this fashion and we begin to pray, do you recall when Peter wrote uh, to husbands and wives and he said, hey, you know, you're not treating each other as if you're fellow heirs of grace and it hinders your prayers. So we're called into a lifestyle of loving service. And as we do that, we are submitted in a very real and tangible way to the authority of God in our lives. He is revealing himself through us to an unbelieving world through these acts of love and service. And then he, and then he is able to reveal himself through our lives through power, raw power, which results in miracles, healing, uh, the ability to liberate people from demonic uh, oppression and possession. Um, I, wanna, I need to close, so let's, uh, let's go to... Um, Romans, the ninth chapter, there is a beautiful picture here of, uh, of God's love at work, what it really looks like. You remember in, in James 4, 7, he says it succinctly, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. A life lived in submission to God is a life through which his authority and power can flow unhindered. And uh, when we resist the devil, and he has to be resisted, he will flee. Romans the ninth chapter, Paul is lamenting the state of Israel, his kinsmen, that they have rejected uh, Christ largely at that time. And he writes something interesting in Romans 9, verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. What does he mean? He's suggesting that if it were possible, of course it's not, but he said, if it's possible, I would wish myself accursed. I would be willing to be cut off from Christ if it would mean the salvation of my brethren, the Jews. What is the value in that for Paul? If he were accursed, cut off from Christ, where would he spend eternity? In hell. For the benefit of his kinsmen, his brethren, the Jews. That is the picture of God's love. There is no self-interest in God's love. It is utterly giving. That's hard. But remember, His love has been liberated in our hearts by the Holy Spirit at the moment of the new birth. That is at work in us. And by lending ourselves to God in service to others, that love that's already present in us simply begins to be liberated. It becomes a compelling factor in our lives. We don't do it because I have to or because I ought to, but it begins, we begin doing these things um, simply in response to this love that's at work in us. Well, I hope that was helpful. <laughs> let, me, let me pray with you. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, you would um, bring life to this. Um, I, I pray that we discover Jesus in it, that he leaps out of the pages of, of this book and 
into our lives, bringing this truth alive so that it becomes part of us, Lord, and that we find ourselves responding to it through in obedience, Lord, to you, joyful obedience, and on the lookout for opportunities to serve and bless others. In Jesus' name, amen. Brother Don, I think... Uh...